This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, South Dakota's Republican Governor Kristi Noem discusses her book, Not My First Rodeo. She speaks about her life and political career. In South Dakota, I think for a Democrat to be elected, and even for Republicans, you you know, you need to be a little bipartisan and work together. It's South Dakota is very populist. People think it's very conservative, and it's really not. She's interviewed by Washington Examiner's senior political correspondent and author David Drucker. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is clipped. Now streaming only on Hulu. Governor Christy Nome, I'm going to rip the Band-Aid off and get right to some of the topics you may not want to discuss or may not want to discuss all the time. And then we're going to get right into uh, Not My First Rodeo, Lessons from the Heartland, your brand new book. Mm-hmm. Have you ever thought generally speaking, about running for president? Well, people ask me about it quite a bit. Uh, so then, of course, you you have to. But I'm really focused on staying in South Dakota. I'm running for re-election this year. Hope the people of our state trust me to serve them another four years. And, and that's really what my goal is. Uh, beyond that, I, I know we do need good leadership in this country. I'm sure there's a lot of people that are interested in that job. Have you ever given specific thought to running for president in 2024? No, I haven't. You know, people speculate. I think that's the nature of politics, but I specifically have not. I'm not convinced that that, that has to be me in that position. Fair enough. I wanted to ask you and do a little time traveling uh, for just a moment. We're in the midst right now in Washington. um, And granted, a lot of people look at what happens in Washington and scratch Mm -hmm. their heads. But we're in the midst right now of the special select committee in the House to examine what happened on January 6, 2021. On that day, as you watch supporters of former President Donald Trump storm the Capitol in an effort to halt congressional certification of President Joe Biden's victory, now, this is a building where you worked for a number of years. What were you thinking that day as you watched that unfold? Oh, I think I was like m- many people. I was grieved by what I was seeing. I think what's going on with the committees now and what we saw this week was discouraging. A lot of the testimony was hearsay, not necessarily factual. And that's why I think there's so many things going on in this country with inflation, energy costs, Things that are impacting families across the nation that I would love to see Congress focus on those and do what they can to continue to make sure that we have an environment where people can feed their families, uh, pursue opportunities in the future for their careers and really protect their freedoms. Do you view President Trump uh, as the undisputed leader of the Republican Party? And if he chooses to run in 2024, mount a third White House campaign, should other Republicans step aside? Well, you know, I've spent a lot of time talking to people across the country. And right now, I don't believe there's anybody that can defeat President Trump in a in a Republican primary. He's got a group of individuals that are extremely loyal to him. I've always supported all of his policies. Uh, I think his leadership was good for the country compared to what we have today. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that shapes up over the next several years. But if he were to run, he'd certainly have my support. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the Republican Party generally. You know, I noticed this in the immediate aftermath of the 2020 election. You delivered a speech at the Republican National Committee uh, at a meeting in Georgia, and you were quite critical of how Republicans in Congress have operated at times, and and you were critical of the party's inability, uh, from your point of view at times, to deliver on campaign promises. Where do you think your party has fallen short? 
I think if you go back and you look at what I actually said there, yes, I said that we've fallen short at times, but I also said uh, where we need to go, what we need to do, what's hopeful about the Republican Party. I think that's really what the country is desperate for right now is some optimism. You know, if you look at my state of South Dakota, what we did was basically what conservatives believe in the last several years. We uh, had a very limited government role. We gave people flexibility, let them use personal responsibility to make the best decisions for their families and their businesses. And now our economy is leading the nation. We, Our children are doing better with educational outcomes than virtually anywhere in the country. Incomes are going up faster in our state than anywhere else. And people are thriving more than they are in many of these other states. So leadership has consequences. And uh, Republicans uh, can be a party now that brings hope, brings optimism. And that really is what the people in this country need to be reminded of. This is a very special country. And so much of what we see in the news is discouraging. I would prefer that we talk a lot about uh, what our founders gave us and the blessings that we have. Uh, When you served in Congress, if memory serves me correctly, you entered with a brand new Republican majority, uh, but with a Democrat still in the White House. And, And so I wanted to sort of get your insight on this. You know, Republicans could have a very good November this year um, and beginning next January have um, majorities of some sort in the House and in the Senate, at least the ability to to put bills on the floor and and pass at least some of them through the House. What is your recommendation to uh, your fellow Republicans in Congress or who may be in Congress next year in terms of how you deliver on what they believe the American people want, but how you also function in a uh, political reality where Democrats are still likely to have filibuster power in the Senate to block House-passed bills, and where President Joe Biden is still going to be in the White House with a veto pen? Well, the reality is, is that the Senate doesn't even necessarily have to talk about what the House is talking about. That's what's so broken about Washington, D.C. I talk about this quite a bit in my book that just was released this week uh, called Not My First Rodeo, but it talks about the dysfunction in Washington, D.C., and, and when I did serve in Congress the first couple of years, there we did have Barack Obama in the White House, and we learned how to figure out a way to get some things passed. A lot of what we wanted to do as Republicans in the House did not get passed, but it was a check and balance to the system. And what I believe the Republicans in the House and the Senate need to do is cast a vision um, for where we're going, not just be opposed to Joe Biden, even though so many of his policies are bad for our country right now. I do think that we also have to be pretty clear on what we're for and to be ready to take action should we have the opportunity to get congressional bills passed and get them to the president's desk. In Not My First Rodeo, Lessons from the Heartland, you discuss a lot about what you're for uh, and also talk a lot about your experiences, which I want to discuss in a minute. But do you think uh, Republicans outside of South Dakota, other than yourself, have done a good job Uh, casting a vision for what Republicans will do with new majorities if they win them in November? I think it depends on the Republican, you know, and what what their message is. Uh, There are some that are talking about what they would like to do. There are many that want to get the regulations off our backs, do better trade agreements, really address national security concerns, you know, make sure we're leading again through peace, through strength. Uh, those are all things they talk about. Um, you know, I know the House of Representatives specific has been messaging what they would do if they were to get the House back. Uh, I think governing is incredibly important uh, and also keeping perspective. So many people uh, have been successful in the past running for office when they talked about what the people at home care about. We saw a new governor get elected in Virginia by focusing on what people cared about in the communities throughout that state, Uh, not getting diverted down national political divisive topics, but focusing on what his people cared about and his, the kids and the education they were getting. So that really is a discipline that I think we all could learn as public servants is that even though what we think uh, may be the conversation to be having, it's really what the people at home want us to focus on that we should be looking at. Good. All right. Let's get, um, let's get into your book. And, you know, if, if, if you haven't written one of these things before, uh, not always as easy as it might appear. Um, I've got a little experience with that myself. And so I, I, I just wanted to ask you off the top, uh, not my first rodeo, uh, Lessons from the Heartland, what is your book about? 
Well, most people would assume that it's just a political book, you know, that it voices all of my opinions on the political topics of the day. But it's really more um, a story of my life lived so far, um, what I've learned over the years, leadership qualities from the heartland, you know, how I grew up on a ranch and what uh, the very uh, big presence in my life my dad taught me by having a strong work ethic. We don't complain about things. We fix them. Also, my time in the state legislature how I made big decisions in my life. And I think a lot of people first heard my name during COVID, uh, but it's important for them to know that that wasn't my first rodeo. That wasn't my first challenge I went through. I did uh, have a a life before that and served in Congress. And some of those experiences along the way, I think will give people a little better understanding about how I make my decisions when it comes to this public office that I hold today as well. Not My First Rodeo Lessons from the Heartland opens with, I, I think my favorite story of yours, and because they pay me to do this, I have heard it, but I bet you a lot of people have not, out, at least outside of South Dakota, have not heard this story. And I want to I go to the, your words, and it's chapter one, and I thought it was fitting, just given how often you talk about this in terms of how it shaped you. Chapter one is titled The Tapes, and you start the book like this. I don't know why I'm doing this, he said over the cackles of the tape recorder. I guess I'll go check cows click. The tape stopped. That was the end. I couldn't believe what I just heard, what I had just found, what I held in my hands, and what a gift it was. Suddenly I knew everything would be okay, or was going to be okay, excuse me. We were going to get through this. Governor Nome, talk about this story, uh, fill it in for us, and why it's such a poignant moment in your life. Well, most people wonder how I got involved in government and politics to begin with. I don't come from a political family. Nobody ever been really that interested in government. Uh, Nobody would run for office. Um, And it was a very strange route for me to take growing up, just wanting to graduate from college, go home and be in business uh, on the farm and ranch with my dad. So it really was a a big life changer for me when my dad was killed in an accident on our family operation And it was, I was 22 years old at the time. Uh, My older brother and sister were living out of state. My younger brother's still in high school. I ended up quitting college, coming home and becoming the general manager of a large business, had a lot of people working for me. And over and over again, at the age of 22, I was wishing that I could just ask my dad questions. I had been working all the time, trying to figure out how to keep the business together. We were hit with death taxes, trying to figure out how to pay that bill when we didn't have any money in the bank. And, um, you know, for, for months I struggled and wondered if we'd be okay. And then one day I decided I'd finally clean out my dad's pickup, which is where he kind of ran everything out of, you know, if most ranchers and farmers live out of their pickup trucks. And I found these little dictation tapes, a little micro cassette recorder and these tapes. And when I started to play them, it was my dad's voice. And on these tapes were answers to all the questions that I wished I'd had over the several months previous. It was what variety of seed corn worked best on what soil type, uh, what what cattle um, bred best and did well in our climate, uh, what neighbors to trust, which ones were good friends, what to do if we ever got into financial trouble. Even he talked about us kids, what he thought we would be when we grew up Uh, And some of those tapes were almost 10 years old. He'd moved them from pickup to pickup over the years. And my dad wasn't a talker. So it was such a shock to me to find something like that. Nobody had any idea he was doing something like that. And uh, and I was just uh, amazed at the fact that the answer to every question I could have possibly had was on those tapes. It was like a, a prayer delivered and answered. And at that moment, I felt a I guess a piece that passes all understanding. It was it was almost like I just knew that if God cared enough to give me all the answers to those questions, then we were going to be fine. It'd be taken care of. Talk about the farm a little bit. How big is it? What do you farm? Uh, how long has it been in the family? Well, you know, it's been in the family for generations. Uh, you know, my, my dad grew up on the uh, operation. I live on the ranch, which my dad purchased probably when I was about 12 or 13 years old. That's about 15 miles away from where the original farm is, but it's very special land. You know, my grandfather uh, first bought the first piece of land, um, you know, by not having any 
even $2 he could scrape together. He started actually a mink and fox farm and uh, started to raise money that way to buy their first quarter of land. And and so I come from a family that recognized the value of owning something. In fact, my dad said all the time, Christy, don't sell land. God isn't making any more land. And really your whole estate, what, what your legacy was, was tied up in in the land that you could pass on to your children and your grandchildren. So it's a special place. It was always more than just a place to call home. It was a place where our family had its roots, our foundation. In Not My First Rodeo, Lessons from the Heartland, you talk about a moment where you and your dad took a drive to what you refer to in the the book as native land, and Mm -hmm. you got real excited about it. And then he said, oh yeah, I bought it. Is that the ranch? That's where I live. Yes. And in in our part of the state, it's very rare to find native ground. Native ground is land that's never been turned. It's never been plowed. It's the same as it would have been hundreds of years ago. And it's very special. Even in South Dakota, there's certain native flowers. Our state flower, the past, only grows on native ground. Once you turn it, it'll never grow there again. And so um, I'd always treasured rough prairie like that. And it was, I remember being very young and my dad showing me this special place of hundreds and hundreds of acres that um, was all native and saying, I wanted to live there someday. And dad said, well, I bought it. It's, it's mine. And me asking him if I could live there someday and him saying, well, someday I'll let you buy it from me. Um, You know, there was no free lunch in my dad's world. So I eventually did. And my husband and I still live there today. Fascinating. Uh, what uh, what are the different things that you farm and who runs the farm today? Well, today my brothers do. Uh, what happened was when I went to Congress, uh, you know, my us four siblings all worked together in partnership with my mom for many, many years. Um, but when I went to Congress, I was going to be gone a lot and obviously spending my time uh, in other entities. So my brothers at that time bought us, my sister and I, out of the business operation. We still have equity in the land and other things, but uh, they run the the business and they do the farming now today. The book is Not My First Rodeo, Lessons from the Heartland. The the author is Governor Christy Nome of South Dakota. Uh, You know, a lot of children will grow up in a family business and either reject the family business or just not want to go into the same line of work as, as their parents did. This is something that you embraced And I was trying to get a sense of how much this was a matter of circumstance for you, given your father's accident, or or whether this is something you ultimately decided that you loved enough to want to do before you found your current vocation. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Well, I would say my dad and I were a lot alike. Uh, in fact, my brother says, if you want to know what my dad was like, spend a day with Christy. Um, so, you know, at times that was wonderful. I, my dream was farming and ranching for the rest of my life. At other times, both of us have very strong personalities and and uh, we both kind of wanted to be in charge, too. So I don't know what that would have looked like into the future. Um, but but, yeah, I did not think that I could ever be happy not farming and ranching. Uh, my passion is animals. I love the land. I love being outdoors. Uh, the fact that I do what I do today is very strange, was never on my radar. So my plan was always to be involved in the family business. The fact that I'm not today is a very unique circumstance. You spend a lot of time in Not My First Rodeo talking about your parents. Uh, who are they? Where do they come from? How did they meet? 
Well, my dad, uh, you know, grew up in the same area as my mom. My mom grew up in Watertown, which was about 20 miles away. So both from South Dakota, both from the northeastern corner. My dad was uh, raised out in the country farming and raising cattle. Um, my mom was a city girl. So, And what does that mean met, in South Dakota? Well, it means that the town was probably fifteen to 20,000 people. So not, probably not a city girl in terms of what a lot of the country thinks, but she... <laughs> Had uh, she certainly had a 4-H and had showed cattle before, so I guess that still doesn't make her um, quite the city girl that a lot of people would say. But she certainly had never run tractors and lived the kind of life that my dad uh, had required when she married him. In fact, she says when she got married, she moved out to the farm and was so lonely because it was so far away from her family. You know, they only went into town on Sundays, really, and uh, she immediately was put in a tractor. She had no idea what to do and was out of her element. So uh, I think they met, you know, through high school friends, uh, but uh, quickly fell in love, got married. And uh, my mom's whole life became then running the business with my dad. He worked so hard all the time. She was kind of the peacemaker in the family. She's the one who kept us alive. He was always coming in the house and saying, let's go, let's go, let's go. And she was the one shoving food in our pockets to saying, here, eat this on the way to the field or eat this on the way to, to haul cattle and, and taking care of us kids and, and running parts and stuff around the country, supporting the business as well. And do you, do you guys know how uh, far back your family goes in South Dakota and where they came from? Well, my grandfather on my mother's side, it was his parents that came over from Norway. Um, my my dad's uh, grandparents w- had been here before, but they are more German, but they were uh, originally settled up north of us, probably about 50 miles. So, you know, at least four generations in this country, but, um, you know, very much tied to the land when they came. They worked and earned every single thing that, that they have today. And your siblings, you talk a lot about them. You write a lot about them in Not My First Rodeo. Uh, What was your relationship like growing up? Uh, What has it been like as governor? And if they ever get out of line, do you threaten them with tax audits or anything crazy? (laughs) (laughs) No, you know, it's funny how different we all are. My sister is the oldest, and I tell people all the time, I may run South Dakota, but she still runs my life. So um, when Cindy tells me to do something, I do it. And she's the one who, you know, when I went to Congress, got elected, that was such a different thing for our family. I was, you know, leading 4-H groups. I was the children's pastor at our church. I was running businesses. My kids were little. Uh, She's the one who filled in all the holes. She took over every job that I suddenly dropped. She took care of my kids, ran treats to school, took them to the doctor. Uh, Her and my mom were incredibly helpful with this sudden upheaval in life when I decided for the first time out of all of us to go do something different. Uh, My brother Rock went to college to get a psychology degree. So he was never going to come back and be a part of the business until my dad passed away. And came home to help for a little while, didn't want to be a part of the business, but after a couple of years decided to stay. So Rock is the one that you, um, you know, he's the second oldest, Cindy is the oldest, then Rock, and Rock is the one who, when you say, boy, I didn't sleep very night, very well last night, I had a bunch of dreams and kept me awake, he'd say, oh, Christy, tell me all about the dreams you had and <laughs> want to do an analysis on me. But he's wonderful, a very deep thinker, a very thoughtful. And then I am the third out of four. And then my brother, Rob, is the baby of the family, but he is the big guy. And he is probably the most wonderful father I've ever met before. He has six children, three that he has adopted. And, uh, hard worker. Uh, he calls me almost every day to check on me and make sure I'm doing okay. And, uh, and uh, you know, loves machinery and working outside and, and really is a man of the land. So I probably am closest right now to, to Rob when, when I was farming, it was uh, Cindy, but we all just recognize that what we had growing up in our family and being so close and spending over you know, 20 years being in business together was a really special way to grow up. All of our children feel like they're brothers and sisters because every day they were together while we were running our operation, uh, growing up together the same age. And uh, that doesn't happen everywhere in the country. No, it doesn't. Family businesses can be quite contentious and it does not always go well. And I have some personal experience with that. Um, You have an anniversary uh, that's 
coming up or uh, have already happened, uh, depending on when people are watching this. Uh, let, talk to me about how you met your husband and and how did you end up, and I think people would, I mean, find this interesting, how did you end up honeymooning at Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles? <laughs> now, that's my neck of the woods, so, um, you know, I, I, I could almost look at L.A. like sort of a small town, depending on how much traffic I have to fight to get anywhere. But that had to be some real culture shock for you guys back then. But uh, talk about that. Yes. Well, my husband went to the same high school I did. He was two years older than me. We didn't start dating until, um, you know, he went to college. I was still in high school, but he was in college. And, you know, to be honest with you, he was one of my brother's friends. And, uh, you know, we started dating. And it, it was interesting because uh, when we got engaged and we're going to get married, he hadn't left the state of South Dakota before. In fact, I think he had only gone maybe to Minneapolis once for like a twins game, but he was a huge Dodger fan. His dad was a Brooklyn Dodger fan and had always watched games, listened to games. And it was a very big decision for him on where he wanted to go on the honeymoon. If you could go anywhere in the world, where would you go? And he just struggled with that. Of course, we didn't have any money. So doing something on a budget was important. And uh, we were trying to figure out what to do. And finally, he was struggling so much. I said, you know, listen, Brian, if you could go anywhere in the world, where would you go? And without even thinking, he said Dodger Stadium. And I said, all right, well, then let's go to Dodger Stadium for our honeymoon and uh, booked it. The problem was the Dodgers didn't play until about two weeks after we got married. So we got married and then went right back to work at the farm the next day uh, and two weeks later left for our honeymoon. And I did not realize when I agreed to Dodger Stadium, though, that we that I was agreeing to go to the entire series <laughs> and that uh, that meant all of batting practice as well and staying till the entire games were over. And we my husband was so enthralled with being there that. Um, he brought my dad's video camera, which at that time, if you think about this, is back in the 90s. It was bright yellow. It was as big as a suitcase. And he uh, video cameras were not allowed in Dodger Stadium. He snuck it in every day and then went around and tried to video everything that he could and then was chased by security guards. And I would just sit there for hours and think, what kind of a honeymoon is this? But uh, they would eventually take it away from him. But I think we came home from that honeymoon with about 11 or 12 hours a videotape of just Dodger Stadium because um, he loved it so much. So that was an interesting honeymoon, but very special because he was thrilled to be there. We've been married 30 years now. And eventually about 10 years later, he did take me on a, on a cruise. So I did get a different kind of a trip about 10 years later. But um, yeah, very special guy. I think that that he, uh, you know, when he married me, I was going to be a farmer. So he didn't necessarily sign up for this crazy life that we live, but he has hung in there and really been the support that I need to continue doing what I'm doing. Well, to his credit, Dodger Stadium is one of the most beautiful baseball stadiums in the country. Uh, so he has good taste. Um, yes, he does. It was, it, it was beautiful. We loved it. I just ate a lot of Dodger dogs that week. <laughs> well, you probably, oh. got your, you, you probably got your fill. Um, yes. Not My First Rodeo, Lessons from the Heartland is the book. Governor Christy Nome of South Dakota is the author. Let's talk about, well, your first rodeo. You decide uh, after a while of running the farm to get involved in politics, and, and it sort of started out innocently enough because whenever you run a business, you're very attuned to government regulations, taxes, uh, more so than if you're just uh, getting a check every week. And uh, that sort of got you involved in policy and having opinions on that. Uh, but you make the leap to run for a seat in the state legislature. What were you thinking at the time, and, and how did your family react? Because this is not, in the grand scheme of things, that long ago. Uh, and in the modern era, when, when somebody runs for Congress, the spotlight hits their family, their family's business dealings, and all sorts of things. It's not just the candidate. You know, I would say that after my dad passed away, um, within a year or two, I had received some awards that, that kind of put me on people's radar. I was named South Dakota's Outstanding Young Farmer uh, within a few years after dad passed and then South Dakota's Outstanding Young Leader. And at that time, our U.S. Senator was Tom Daschle. Um, he was uh, the majority leader in the, House, in the Senate and uh, was from South Dakota. And I was at a lot of his meetings. He ended up 
appointing me to a board that oversaw all the federal farm programs in the state. So I was involved in policy and and showing up with different people. And people started to ask me to consider running for the state legislature. Um, you know, it was interesting because asking my family, they just thought, well, that's strange. And you know, nobody's done that before. But in our state, this, the legislature meets for 40 days a year. You go in in January, you balance the budget, pass bills, and then go back home and back to your jobs. And it wasn't that big of a commitment outside of session. And we figured we would try it. And if it worked, then everything would be okay. I did that, um, got elected and ran for leadership uh, right away and served as the assistant majority leader in the house. But that's really when a lot of the pressure started to come to run for Congress, which I was not interested in doing at all. In fact, people asked for two years if my husband and I would consider running for Congress because we were represented in the U.S. House by a blue dog Democrat. And of course, I was a Republican and people wanted me to challenge uh, that representative before she decided to go after John Thune, who was our U.S. Senator. So I think a lot of John Thune supporters and he himself were interested in me challenging her and beating her before she decided to run for the Senate. And eventually, after two years of people calling and talking, and I explain a lot of this in, in the book as well, that I finally said to my husband, you know, maybe we just run. And if we lose, uh, people will leave us alone. And we don't. We can quit talking about this because she was very popular at the time and uh, hadn't voted for Obamacare or the stimulus package. And um, but she had voted for Nancy Pelosi, and I spent a lot of my time during that camp- campaign talking about that. And that was really when things got elevated to more of a national level because that was a heated campaign, one of the top five races in the nation at the time, and very contentious. I would say I was admittedly out of my element, and it was a, a very Interesting, difficult campaign for me. That Democrat was Stephanie Herseth Sandlin, and um, she made South Dakota very competitive for Democrats just Mm -hmm. before it seemed like politics in your state tipped uh, to the right. But I wanted to back up for a minute. I was really, and, and I'm supposed to know this stuff, but I did not realize that you had had a relationship of sorts with Tom Daschle, a former senator from South Dakota, a Democratic majority leader in the U.S. Senate, Uh, Just talk about that, because we don't see that sort of thing that often anymore. Yeah, you know, Tom was always very good to me. Um, In fact, he uh, he gave me opportunities that I would say even Republicans wouldn't give me opportunities to do in South Dakota. I think for a Democrat to be elected and even for Republicans, you you know, you need to be a little bipartisan and work together. It's South Dakota is very populist. People think it's very conservative and it's really not. In fact, you know, my last race when I ran for governor just three and a half years ago, I only won by three points and it was against a guy who was a Bernie Sanders supporter. So, you know, it's it's very much a state that can go back and forth. And and Tom was being the, you know, was the majority leader, very influential. I cared about farm bills. I cared about tax reform. Uh, and I was somebody who didn't complain about things. I tried to show up and be a part of the solution. And I think he appreciated that. He had a leadership camp every year that uh, he would host for new leaders in the state that he thought had potential to serve. And he did invite me to that one year. Um, And I went, I, I thought it was in the Black Hills for a weekend and he brought in speakers and we spent time together talking about policy and what it's like to run for office. I was, it was interesting to me um, because I never once considered becoming a Democrat. I think maybe he probably hoped I would. Um, but, but boy, for years after that, even when I ran for Congress, I had a lot of Republicans who, who questioned if I was truly a Republican just because I had attended that, that leadership camp that Tom Daschle had hosted. They, I was, it was surprised by how uh, they felt like that tainted my credentials to even be a Republican that I would go and spend time with Democrats. It struck me in reading Not My First Rodeo uh, that politics is something that you you really, I don't know if, if the, the phrase would be fell in love with, but for somebody who wasn't steeped in it necessarily and came to it later in life, um, I feel like you dove right in and in a sense found your calling. Just talk about um, doing this for a living uh, the past few years and, and, and how it has felt in terms of of the professional satisfaction you have gotten from the work? 
Well, you know, my husband would tell you that I'm kind of obsessive with everything I do. You know, whatever I do, I do 110%. So even when I worked at the farm, you know, I was working 20 hour days. The kids were coming with me in the tractors. You know, we were always adding more and more things to, to, you know, what we needed to get accomplished every day. I was, I had a grandma that told me when I was having my first daughter that, um, I needed to say yes to things. The world is filled with people who say, no, I'm too busy. No, I can't do that. And that I should be a mom who said yes. And I should be a person who said yes. And I took that to heart. So I would, I would think that, you know, while I dove in head first and, you know, uh, going a hundred miles an hour in politics, I kind of did that with everything. In fact, I tell a couple stories in the book about how I decided one time to take up quilting and, um, that was not very smart because uh, my mom finally came to me after I hadn't slept for three days because I couldn't stop until the quilt was done. She said, you know, I don't think quilting's for you. It's supposed to be relaxing and you're supposed to sleep. But for me, I couldn't stop until I got the project done. So, you know, that's a little bit of my personality. But, you know, I, I definitely recognize that if I'm going to be gone from my family, I'm going to be gone from my commitments at the businesses, then I want to make a difference. You know, I might as well be in leadership, be the person in the room making the decisions. And and that's kind of the approach that I've always had is that when I'm gone someday, I want people to at least say she lived a life of significance. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. So that obsessiveness that you describe actually lends a lot more context to a story you talk about in Not My First Rodeo, Lessons from the Heartland, uh, about uh, soon after you first arrived in the state legislature. And it was about uh, the issue of abortion, which is very timely right now. And um, I, I just want to read from this, uh, from your book, but you you immediately... Um, and correct me if if I'm misremembering the story here, Governor, but you immediately proposed legislation uh, to uh, pro-life legislation to curtail abortion rights or or however you would like to describe it. And some other Republicans, also obviously pro-life Republicans in the legislature, uh, told you it was bad strategy. They weren't pleased with it. You immediately uh, emailed your constituents back home. That email made its way into a blog um, and it became much the topic of conversation in your state. Um, you, you write about the articles that were written. The article made me sound arrogant and naive, and frankly, I was. I had sent the message to everyone that I couldn't be trusted. If I disagree with someone, I would start attacking them with emails to constituents. Uh, talk to me about how formative that experience was in how you developed your governing style, even on issues where you are extremely passionate and that are, are where you're very principled, um, and how that approaches how you have governed uh, as the chief executive. Well, that situation, you know, I was brand new to the legislature, um, you know, wanted to, to do something impactful. We had just had a ballot initiative that would have completely banned abortions in the state. It had gone to the public and it had failed. And I wanted to immediately bring another bill forward um, that that would have the debate in the legislature. I remember having a meeting with those who cared about this issue and just being shocked that the state's president of right to life was against bringing a bill. And it was a a man from my own district, the other representative, but he also was my husband's cousin. So that tells you how small South Dakota is. Uh, But I was just so surprised by it that I 
you know, went and immediately after the meeting emailed people back home and said they needed to call him and talk to him. And then that made it into the public news stories. And I just realized um, immediately how bad I sounded like a know-it-all that I didn't even go to him and really discuss it with him. Instead, I decided to start emailing people back home who didn't have a context of what was said in that meeting or the strategy behind it. And it was a very teachable moment for me. Um, you know, that, that I didn't want to be the kind of person who ambushed others in policy. And I recognize that trust is, is something where you create an environment where you, you build a team. And it's not where you either trust somebody or don't. It's almost like a bank account. You, you do different actions, how you treat people, how you talk to them, and you're, how dependable you are is, is building trust day after day after day. And I wanted my colleagues to know that I was somebody who was reasonable, logical, smart and could look at the consequences of everything that we did and make sure that it was the right thing to do. Um, So I appreciated that teaching lesson. It was pretty miserable because I was brand new and, you know, everybody avoided me after that. Everybody was talking about me and I felt like that uh, I really had gotten off on the wrong foot. And that's when the majority leader, Larry Roden came to me, invited me out to dinner that night. He tells everybody that the reason he did that is, he went around to other members and people that worked in the legislature or lobbyists and said, Hey, do you want to go have dinner with Christy Nome and me? I, she doesn't have any friends. <laughs> they, um, they agreed. And those, uh, those four men that came to that, that dinner that night, uh, you know, with this young mom and shared, uh, you know, a meal and also their thoughts and knowledge about the legislature are still my dearest friends today. So I thought that I think that one of the reasons that that particular anecdote from not my first rodeo lessons from the heartland jumped out at me is is we're talking in the immediate aftermath of the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs v. Uh, Jackson Women's Health Center. And uh, as you're well aware, as the country's well aware, that decision overturned Roe versus Wade and eliminated federal protect protections for abortion rights and has returned that question to the states. Um, mm-hmm. What does abortion, uh, what do abortion rights look like in South Dakota in the aftermath of you and the legislature now having the ability to decide on this question? Well, in 2005, South Dakota had passed a bill that put in place a trigger law that said if Roe was ever overturned, that abortion would be illegal in the state, except to save the life of a mother. So that is the law today. And uh, I know that. Um, and where does the excuse me? Where does the prohibition begin in pregnancy? And is the life of the mother the only exception? The life of the mother is the only exception today, as the statute reads. And it is not any consequences against the mother where it would add any kind of punishment would be on the doctor's responsibility for a doctor who would knowingly break the law they are the ones who would be prosecuted, never the women that would be involved in this situation with an unplanned pregnancy or, or a crisis that they feel they may be facing because of, of, of this situation. And where does South Dakota law in this trigger law, uh, uh, where does the prohibition come in? At conception, at six weeks, at 15 weeks, where is it? Yeah, it is in the first trimester, and it is when that that pregnancy can be detected. So that's part of the debate. And if you remember, the next case that would come before the Supreme Court uh, is a South Dakota case. Um, you know, we, we'd been watching the Dobbs case in South Dakota, um, recognizing it could overturn Roe, but we believed that if it did not, that the next case that the Supreme Court would hear would be Planned Parenthood versus Nome. And it's a decision um, on informed consent uh, case that now I believe uh, Planned Parenthood is asking to be dismissed because of the decision that we've seen come down on Roe v. Wade. So is this essentially a heartbeat bill? In other words, once a heartbeat has been detected uh, and there is a viable pregnancy, that that's when the prohibition kicks in? We actually had a a debate this year on doing a heartbeat bill, much like Texas, that would have put it in place whether or not Roe was overturned or not. Um, It was interesting to me because we had some division among Republicans this year about that. Many Republicans in the legislature did not want to bring a heartbeat bill because they felt it would jeopardize our, our Supreme Court case. They didn't want Planned Parenthood to completely pull out of the state because they felt like that would undermine the case that we would have that may overturn Roe. 
Uh, I wanted to introduce the bill, brought it forward, and the legislature refused to accept it. But my belief is, is that that is what the debate should be, is around when you can detect that heartbeat, uh, that that is, we know, a human being and a life, and that that is when the protection would kick in. Okay, and Governor, I don't mean to belabor this, but just can you help define for me a little bit better where in the first trimester uh, is abortion still legal? And at what point in that first trimester does it become illegal? Yes, it is when that pregnancy is determined between the woman and the doctor, when there's notification there. So abortions are are illegal as of today, except to save the case of the life of the mother. Okay. And in response to criticism, often from Democrats, but not only Democrats, that uh, South Dakota law does not allow exceptions in cases of rape and incest. How do you respond to that? You know, I think that'll continue to be a debate. I think there's people here in South Dakota that are continuing to talk about that. Um, for me personally, you know, it's 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 a difficult conversation because I know that this tragic situation that happens to women um, is horrific. And I can't even imagine. I've never had to go through anything like that. So I've just never believed that a tragedy um, should be followed up by another tragedy. And we know from science and and technology over the years, the last 10 to 15 years, that this is a life. There, This is a baby in the womb, that it does feel pain at a certain point. And we also know that when doctors do procedures on these babies in the womb, that they are defined as patients, that they have patients' rights. And it's very difficult to say this is a patient that has rights and not say that it is a human life at the same time. So an intelligent conversation on what every life is precious means, I think, is something the public will continue to debate when they see what these laws look like from state to state. Would you like to see Congress, where you once served, uh, pass legislation banning abortion nationally? I think it's appropriate right now that the discussion happens at the state level. That's really what the Constitution um, defines as the responsibility of the state. So I'm thankful for the Supreme Court decision that said this would be debated uh, amongst a government close to the people instead of at the federal level. Uh, in in Not My First Rodeo, Lessons from the Heartland, um, you recount a story that always sticks with me when I'm telling the story, uh, uh, for whatever reason, about the Republican majority elected in 2010 and, and sort of the, the leadership difficulties Speaker John Boehner, Majority Leader Eric Cantor, and their team had in corralling this new what was then a new Tea Party majority, and telling these stories sometimes I think is informative for people when they're looking at Republicans in Congress now and sometimes the difficulty they have unifying. Uh, what it was surprised me in, to some degree, although it makes sense that you would not want an agriculture bill messed with, given how important this is to South Dakota, was that you had a colleague, and you talk about this in Not My First Rodeo, that wanted to put work requirements for food stamps into the agriculture bill, and this is where these things are dealt with. And while you felt that that may have been worthy, you referred to it as a poison pill, and you really worked over leadership hard not to bend on this and to get the agriculture bill through. And that struck me as that as conservative as you are on policy, uh, there's this pragmatic side to how you govern. I think sometimes you've been criticized for that uh, from the right. Uh, Talk about what that experience was like and... um, how it has sort of informed your policymaking style? Well, I think it's good to understand, first of all, that I view food policy as a national security issue. Uh, when another country grows our food for us, that that's when they control us. So America has always embraced a safe food policy um, and also a affordable one. It's important to us that Every family in this country can afford to go to a grocery store and buy what they need to feed their families. And that's one of the reasons you have a farm bill. It's a safety net program. I tell people all the time, farmers go to the bank, they borrow money and they put it in the dirt. And they hope that months later, the rain will have fallen, the sun will have shined and they can pick up something to go pay their bills. You can make an okay living for 20 years being a farmer. You can have one bad year and lose everything. And so that safety net is incredibly important. It's always been a bipartisan bill that changed dramatically in the next farm bill that happened after 2010. And, you know, we when we make these policy discussions, especially in Washington, D.C., there's no bill that's perfect ever. Um, I wish there was, but you're never going to make everybody happy. And 
This farm bill was incredibly important that we keep enough votes to get it pushed forward through the House to keep that safety net in place so that we didn't have China controlling our food supply. We didn't have other countries growing it for us and having us reliant on those imports. And it was a very, very good, responsible bill. Um, the problem was, is we knew that work requirements on food stamps was going to cause um, a lot of the Democrats to bail. They weren't going to support the bill if that was included. We had several other bills that were coming that could have had that debate, could have been attached to. It could have been a bill on its own. Uh, but instead, the leadership team decided to allow an amendment on the farm bill uh, that they actually, Eric Cantor spoke to, knowing it was a poison pill that it would kill the farm bill and did it anyways, which I felt like was not what leadership was. Leadership is recognizing that you represent a caucus and members that have priorities and you lead that team. Um, by doing that, he let a lot of his team down and I let him know. Um, it was a bit of a battle. And I would say at the end of the day, we got a farm bill passed and, uh, you know, but but being a not being a team at important times on important policy has cost Republicans the ability to govern and the ability to really address the big challenges that we have in this country as far as debt and spending and and even national security issues. And, and I talk about that experience quite a bit because I think people need to understand where their food comes from, why it's important we have farmers here in this country, but also that when it's important, I will challenge leaders, even if I'm just the only member of the House from my state fighting alone and nobody's with me, um, that I will stand up and, and push because if it's important and if it matters, then it's worth it. The book is... I win. <laughs> the book and is... I won the discussion. Yeah. The book is Lessons from the Heartland. Uh, excuse me. The book is not my first rodeo, Lessons from the Heartland. I knew I was going to do that eventually. Uh, the author is Governor Christy Nome of South Dakota, a Republican... Uh, Governor Noem, I think the reason that story jumped out at me is because in looking at the Tea Party era, uh, I, f I believe, and I've talked to other Republicans about this, colleagues of yours, former colleagues of yours, uh, that felt that they had a chance, even with Barack Obama in the White House, to move conservative policy forward, however slowly, however sometimes frustratingly uh, small, but because not there were too many in the group that wanted more, that didn't want to compromise on what they felt were principles, the whole thing came crashing down. And I'm wondering if that would be instructive for the next Republican majority. If you can get some movement, even with Joe Biden in the White House, take it. Uh, and that's what I sort of felt like you were saying with this story in Not My First Rodeo. Am I misinterpreting what you were talking about? No, I think that that's a very good lesson to have. It's also, you know, incredibly important that leaders lay out the full plan, you know, that, that, that members have a confidence of where you're going as well. They might be willing to support a bill like that that didn't have everything in it if they knew it would be addressed and could trust that it was going to be addressed into the future. And I think that's where we've fallen down in the past as Republicans, is not having a strategic plan showing people where we are going to make a big difference far into the future. And so in this day and age, what gets people results is blow each other up, vote no all day, and nothing changes. And I think that's unfortunate because it's not us that will pay the price for that dramatically. It'll be our children and our grandchildren. And what we're doing today in this country isn't sustainable. It's just not. And the way we demonize each other and talk about each other is, is destructive, I think, to our republic. You know, we words have consequences. And the division that we have um, does not facilitate um, debate and conversation and better policy. And, and we've got to have leaders that step forward and help make that happen so that we end up in a place where we still have a country that our founders envisioned. I think a lot of Americans outside of South Dakota probably first heard your name during the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, where were you and what were you involved in when you first heard of COVID-19 and realized that you were dealing with a crisis? Well, I was running my state and making decisions. Of course, all of 2019, we were dealing with flooding in South Dakota. We had been hit with a bomb cyclone that had caused a, a federal disaster in 63 of my 66 counties. So I had spent um, all of 2019 responding to emergencies, helping families and businesses and towns get patched back together, facilitating FEMA assistance. I was certain that 2020 was going to be so much better and that we would actually get back to 
um, you know, just normal government operations. So when I started to hear about this virus at the end of 2019, I wondered if it would ever really come to the United States. Would it be what they were saying it was going to be? Uh, we got into January. I set up an emergency operations center, starting to prepare for it, doing research, assessing what we had for supplies and what we could do to address it. We got our first cases in March, March 10th, and uh, you know, started to work our way through really what the state government could do to help facilitate keeping people healthy, but also giving them flexibility to get through it together. So, you know, we are we're in legislative session. Most of, most of January and February, and we're continuing to fill in legislators on this as well and bring people to the table to figure out how to care for people. What were your thoughts when President Trump, at the very beginning of the pandemic, announced or recommended uh, to the country uh, a two-week shutdown, two weeks, I think the message was two weeks to slow the spread. Your initial, what were your initial thoughts on that uh, recommendation? Well, you know, I thought for our state that we would try to do that. I recommended that people do that, did not mandate it, but also the health experts were telling us that we could have over around 300,000 people in our state die um, from this virus. And so I held press conferences, told them this is what we were hearing. This is what President Trump was asking us to do and encouraged them to do so. And I think most of the people in the state listened. You know, they went out for essentials and did what they needed to do, went to work. But most of the time they tried to not gather and not do things that that would happen. And they didn't want to overwhelm our hospital systems. So, you know, but beyond that, for me, always the discussion was how long is this sustainable? And what my recommendations were going to be to people was going to be on, in reality, how long can they continue to have this kind of action and conduct and and exist? How are we going to keep our our kids educated and keep our businesses open. So, you know, we in April uh, announced that, listen, we're going to go back to normal. Um, you know, we, we've kind of modified our activities in the state, not by mandating, but by recommending, and that we were encouraging people to be smart, to still wash their hands and, and uh, you know, socially distance when possible and to not be in large gatherings, but that we were going to be, go back to normal because it was the right thing to do. You write a lot about your coronavirus strategy in Not My First Rodeo, Lessons from the Heartland. When you decided to make the shift back to a normal footing, did you, did you know that it was the right thing to do? Did it see, was it was simply a matter of balancing risks to the economy as in addition to health risks? Um, and how sure were you that it was going to turn out okay? I mean, I think in retrospect, you know, we can look at um, what happened in South Dakota and what happened in some of the states that had more long-term uh, stringent um, lockdowns and say that South Dakota uh, did okay, although there is obviously a lot of debate around that. But at the time that you, and, and obviously, as you've spoken about this over the past couple of years and as you write about in Not My First Rodeo, it's clear you're, you have no regrets about the policy uh, shift. But at the time you made the shift, uh, how much uh, angst did you have about it, if any, and did you know for a fact that it was going to work? Well, we never in South Dakota talked about cases that much. What we focused on was hospital capacity. So all indications of what we recommended was focused on that and preparing you know, surge uh, hospitals and working with our National Guard and with our administrators to make sure we could, could take care of people who should need care if they got sick. So that was really, you know, what kept things in perspective for us. We knew it was a virus. We knew people would catch it. Uh, we needed to really focus on those um, who would get sick, what we could do to help them get through it and get healthy again. So, you know, I, I knew it was the right thing to do at the time. I also knew it was going to get highly criticized and it did by not just liberals, but by conservatives and, and by my supporters and, and people, you know, that, that felt like they saw other governors doing different things and that I should just fall in line. But I did not know how we would be impacted, but I also knew that uh, what my authority was, what it wasn't, and that uh, people in my state needed to have the ability to go forward and to take care of their families the way they saw fit, making the best decisions with the information that we could share with them. So it was incredible what South Dakota was doing. They were 
They were doing wonderful things to take care of the vulnerable population, and we knew we'd get through it together. Governor Christy Nome of South Dakota is the author of the book, Not My First Rodeo, Lessons from the Heartland. Governor Nome, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. Enjoyed visiting with you. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts.